Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to We Have Ways Family Stories, a weekly show in which regular listeners describe the events that affected their families during the Second World War. Today we've got tales of civilians fleeing through Belgium to escape the invading German forces, an encounter with Guy Gibson of Dambusters fame, plus some sailors enjoying a bit of life ashore. This first story comes from Michael Hallinger. Dear Alan James, I'm an avid listener to your podcast and have learned many new things about the Second World War from you and your guests. Imagine my surprise the other day when your guest, Paul Beaver, mentioned my local pub, the Royal Oak in Goodworth, Clapford. The pub's claim to fame is that the original building was destroyed by an off-course V1 flying bomb in 1944. I'm writing today to tell you a bit about my grandfather, Group Captain H.G. Bill Rowe, DFC, whose services spanned two world wars and who was mentioned in Guy Gibson's book Enemy Coast Ahead. 
My grandfather came from a long line of military men. We have medals going back to the Crimean War, with clasps for Inkerman, Balaclava and Sebastopol. He was born in 1896 in Ranaket, India, where his father was serving as a sergeant in the Essex Regiment. During the First World War, Bill joined an infantry regiment as a private, later being promoted to acting second lieutenant. He transferred to the Royal Flying Corps, which became the Royal Air Force in April 1918, and trained as an observer. He was the chap who sat in the back seat with a machine gun. We have his logbook, which covers the period from September to November 1918, and which has many fascinating short remarks such as Attacked by Fokker, bullets through tailplane, enemy balloon down in flames, and brought down 200 yards behind enemy lines, undercarriage prop, left wing smashed. After the war, Bill trained as a pilot and served in Sudan and Egypt, carrying out empire policing. In 1927, he was shot at from the ground by resentful locals, the bullet tearing through the fuselage and seat and into his thigh. He managed to fly the plane safely back to Khartoum, and we still have the offending piece of shrapnel in a little tin. He was off duty for a month, and on resuming flying duties, the note in his logbook dryly states, Sitting rather uncomfortable. He was subsequently awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for his actions in the Noor region of the Sudan. My grandfather met my grandmother in Cairo and at the beginning of the Second World War found himself back in England at RAF Andover. My mother was born in 1942 in one of the nearby villages and my grandmother told me the story of the time she was out for a walk with my mother in her pram and they were strafed by a German plane. In 1942, Bill was station commander of RAF Coningsby when Guy Gibson of Dambusters fame was posted to 106 Squadron. In his book, Enemy Coast Ahead, Gibson describes my grandfather thus. The station was commanded by Group Captain Daddy Rowe, DFC, a very pleasant, easy-going man. More the naval type than RAF was Daddy, stocky, pipe-smoking, he loved gardening and especially dahlias. His Batman told me that his bathroom and sitting room were so full of them you could hardly see him when he was changing. Gibson was 23 at the time, my grandfather 46, hence the old man nickname of Daddy. It's fascinating to know that he loved dahlias, as I work as a gardener. Later in the war, he was posted to Florida as a liaison officer to the United States Army Air Force. A very happy time, full of dinner parties and sun. He left the RAF at the end of 1945 and went on to be part of the Allied Control Commission, administering a small town in northern Germany. The family lived there for a couple of years, where my mother played with the local children and learned to speak German. In the 1950s, there was a stint with the civil defence in Singapore, and even as a tour guide, taking British coach trips around Germany. Bill Rowe died in 1959, so I sadly never got to meet him. I would love to have heard about the 64 different types of plane he had the chance to fly in his long career, from a DH-9A biplane to Lancasters to the Meteor and P-80 Shooting Star jets. I've attached a few photos one of Bill with his father and brothers in the First World War, and one with my mother during the Second World War. With very best wishes, yours sincerely, Michael Hallinger. This one's from Pete Coots. Hello, Alan James. 
As an avid listener to your podcast, I thought your listeners might like to hear a brief account of my father's service in Bomber Command as a tail gunner on Lancaster bombers and beyond. Dad, John Jock Coots, was born in Kilsyth in 1922 and was an apprentice coach painter at the beginning of hostilities. He was keen to do his bit and went to join the Royal Navy after his father, my granddad, dismissed notions of him joining the army. Grandad had served in the trenches of Flanders in World War I and feared his eldest son might end up in a similar situation. On applying to the Navy, Dad was told that he had poverty-related gum disease and that his teeth were too bad. Typically, Dad replied, Well, what do you want me to do? Bite the buggers to death? Feeling in the doldrums, Dad witnessed an aerial display from a Spitfire over Stirling. He joined the Royal Air Force Volunteer Reserve, who promised to sort his dental issues. Initially, Dad served at a munitions factory before training as a dispatch rider. But by 1943, fearing he might miss out on the action, he volunteered for aircrew with Bomber Command, and specifically as an air gunner. His training took place at Air Gunnery School at Dal Cross, which is now Inverness Airport, and he qualified in October, having shot at many drogues towed by old Anson aircraft. His fledgling pilot was Merrick Heath, and they flew Wellingtons until they completed their training on Stirling bombers. Either side of D-Day, the newly assembled crew carried out liberation leaflet drops, which counted as training missions to Normandy. The crew asked if these counted towards their operational sorties, only to be laughed at. Dad said he was terrified the whole way and saw the vast invasion armada stretched out across the channel. By July 1944, Dad's crew was stationed in Lincolnshire with 44 Rhodesian Squadron, as Merrick was from Bulawayo. The crew were a truly Commonwealth mixed bag. A Rhodesian, an Australian, an Englishman, two Scots and two Northern Irishmen. Missions included supporting the Allied advance, attacking railway marshalling yards, V-1 and V-2 rocket sites, U-boat pens, Axis airfields and, inevitably, many German cities and industrial targets. On his first few missions over Germany, Dad tucked a red brick from the airfield into his flying suit with an obscenity for the Nazis scrawled on it with Chinagraph. He would hurl this out of the clear vision panel in his rear turret. However, he began to feel guilty, worrying that it might hit a woman or a child, so he stopped doing this. Dad's crew took part in the two longest bomber command operations to the Baltic seaport of Königsberg, supporting the Russian advance. It was 11 hours in his tiny turret each trip, with what must have been a tiny payload. While at Spilsby in Lincolnshire, Dad was charged for riding his 350 AGS motorbike around the perimeter track whilst drunk and colliding with a barrier. He woke up in the sick bay, being read his charge. Fortunately, this was later dismissed as high jinks, largely because of the need for his air gunnery skills. By November 1944, my father and his crew had successfully completed their 30 operations and pilot Merrick Heath was awarded the DFC. Dad was asked, do you want to go again, Jock? He replied, no, I don't fancy my chances again, but I'll have a go at the Japs. In May 1945, Dad became a nose gunner flying in consolidated B-24 Liberators, an American heavy bomber, and was stationed in India. After VJ Day, Dad returned to the UK and was demobbed from the RAF, only to rejoin and become an air gunnery instructor on Avro Lincolns on the Isle of Man. He left again in 1949 and again rejoined in 1950 training on radar, 
He finally left the RAF in 1965 at Bentley Priory Air Defence Operations Centre, having served 22 years. Sadly, his friend and pilot Merrick Heath died in an air crash while flying an Avro Lancastrian in November 1948 during the Berlin airlift. Dad and the rest of the crew never got over the news. Dad died in 2006, having had a wonderful life and was survived by his five children, myself being born in 1968 and his ten grandchildren. His experiences never left him, particularly the terror of being coned or mid-air collisions and near misses. Also the flak, burning cities and the fear of night fighters. His odds of surviving all 30 operations were around one in two and I'm truly grateful to be able to tell his tale. He, of course, would thank Merrick, his crew and his beloved Avro Lancaster. Thank you to all who have listened. Blue skies ahead. Kind regards, Pete. Next up, Oliver Nichols. Al, James. First of all, let me say that the podcast has been a godsend for me since it began. It's a period of history I'm fascinated in, and my drive to and from work is all the better for it. Keep up the good work. My family story is about my father Jack, who was born in 1921 in the Beeston area of Leeds and sadly passed in 2007. Whilst he didn't serve in the military during the war, he tried to join up and ultimately did his bit in a reserved occupation. A little bit about his upbringing. Born into the working class neighbourhood of Beeston, he was the youngest of two children. By the age of five, he had already survived meningitis, which was no mean feat back then, as the disease wasn't fully understood. Dad remembered all his toys being burnt as a precaution. His dad, my grandfather, was a chef at Tetley's Brewery, which was a good job. But despite this, the family couldn't afford to send Dad and my aunt all the way through school, so they were only educated up to the age of 14. Growing up in Leeds, there was a large Jewish community and my father and aunt recalled men coming to the house asking after a distant family member by the name of Brown. That side of our family had anglicised their name when they came over to England from the continent many years earlier, when they were escaping the pogroms. Dad said he remembered the men to be quite menacing and he surmised that they were right-wing thugs out to cause trouble. Anti-Semitism was not just in Germany. After leaving school at 14, he was immediately taken on as an apprentice as a plumber's lad. He recalled being taken to Liverpool for work and being left alone in the city centre to find a place to stay. This was 1935 and Liverpool was one of the greatest ports in the world. He told me the job and the experience were very lonely, but he needed to work. When the war came, my father was a toolmaker at an engineering company in Leeds and therefore in a reserved occupation. At this engineering company was a young Swiss apprentice called René, who was stuck in Leeds for the duration of the war. My father and René became best friends. René married a girl from Leeds and only made it home in 1946. Dad made René my godfather, and I'm proud to have his name. With Dad being in a reserved occupation, there was little chance to get into the fight, except to try and get into Bomber Command. Both he and his cousin trained to be navigators on Lancaster's. His cousin made it, but my father suffered from eyesight issues, which would have affected his sight over time in the dim light of a bomber's cabin. This was only discovered near the end of his training, when he kept outperforming everyone in class in night vision challenges. He was beside himself with grief when he realised his chance to join Bomber Command was gone, as he wanted to do his bit. 
He told me that he walked through Hyde Park in floods of tears. Hindsight suggests it may have saved his life. His cousin went through his tour more or less unscathed, but did crash land on a USAAF airbase on one occasion. Dad continued through the war as a toolmaker in Leeds. He claimed to have once held up an aircraft carrier while he completed a jig for parts for a Stuka dive bomber. At the end of the war, my father celebrated with the whole nation. He got so drunk on rum, he could never even bear to smell the stuff thereafter. Even though my father didn't serve, nor see the horrors of frontline service, he was very quiet about his wartime experiences. I would often ask questions, but be answered by saying, that was a long time ago, and it doesn't matter now. However, sometimes I could see the memories haunted him. After the war, he went to night school and educated himself and did very well for himself, as well as for me and my two sisters. The Swiss connection still exists in the family, and the two families remain close. My father travelled to Switzerland in 1947 by train to see his friend René, and he was amazed by the destruction he saw on the journey, and described crossing rivers on Bailey Bridges. Having an older dad with this background definitely made me one of the afflicted Second World War geeks. Many thanks, Oliver Nichols. This correspondent has asked to remain anonymous, out of respect for his grandfather. Dear James and Al, Many thanks for the tremendous podcast. It has been a reassuring staple during these difficult times. I am just writing to let you know of my grandfather, the tail-end Charlie of Bomber Command, who will this April celebrate his 100th birthday. I write this anonymously out of respect for him, as he does not talk about his wartime experiences and would not appreciate the attention. I understand this to be due in part to the terrible events he lived through, which so many of his peers did not survive, but also due to the treatment of and attitudes towards Bomber Command after the war. This left great resentment in my grandfather and many of his colleagues, who had dutifully carried out the operations demanded of them and risked so much in the service of their country. My grandfather is a very gentle and kind man, who still enjoys watching cricket and football and discussing the issues of the day, surrounded by three generations of children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren. I am acutely aware that this could all have been so different, but for an ill-timed encounter with a Luftwaffe fighter or a hail of well-aimed anti-aircraft fire all those years ago. I'm sure the attention he will receive from family and friends this week will be somewhat overwhelming for him, but listeners may also wish to spare a thought and raise a glass to him on this landmark occasion. Happy 100th birthday, Charlie. Guy Ferguson sent us this family story. Dear Alan James, I thoroughly enjoyed your podcast and your take on the war, especially challenging the previously accepted declinist view of history. I love it when one of you breaks into a complete rant, which generally ends up with you asking, if we were so bad, why did we end up winning? Well, that's a fair point. I'm now the proud owner of nine of James's books. Well, good man, Guy, thank you. My father-in-law, Hugh Thomas McBride, known as Mac, followed his elder brother Robert into the Navy as a boy seaman in 1938. I gather this was to escape an abusive father, though I think they were both quite a handful. They told me stories of putting rice pudding in his shoes and setting his bedclothes alight, which would suggest a richer story. Mac was trained in gunnery and progressed pretty well. 
He served on HMS Somali, a tribal class destroyer with eight 4.7 inch guns mounted in twin turrets, one of which could be used in a high angle anti-aircraft role. In 1941, HMS Somali took part in the raid on the Lofoten Islands, and the Somali's men also boarded the German weather ship Munchen and found vital documents on the operation of the Enigma machine. He never mentioned this, and I suspect the information was kept to those who needed to know. Mac did tell me that he once set the wrong settings on some shells when doing gunnery practice, and as a result nearly sank part of a Norwegian fishing fleet. He got a serious wigging by the first lieutenant, but no punishment. The Somali was involved in several of the Arctic convoys, and he had to hack ice off the top side of the ship to prevent it capsizing. On September the 20th, 1942, Somali was torpedoed and sunk by U-boat 703 while on a convoy. Mac had been playing records for the entertainment of the crew from a station exactly where the torpedo hit, but he had luckily gone to get Coco moments before. The torpedo blew out the middle section of the ship. It was held together by the keel and the packing ring, which was used to swing the torpedoes to range on both sides of the ship. His sister ship, HMS Eskimo, took the Somali under tow, but she broke up during the night and sank. A skeleton crew remained on board and were in large part lost in the icy waters. Mac survived and regaled me with excellent stories of his exploits. I got the impression that the rest of the crew really looked after the young Mac, who seemed to have an aptitude for starting fights and then walking away unscathed. Once in Portsmouth, he was listening to a woman singing along to a piano disliking the quality of her musical offering, and, in his cups, he commented, Why don't you shut up? Her boyfriend stood up to remonstrate, whereupon Mac's shipmates intervened and suggested he leave the boy alone. There followed a western-style saloon brawl, whilst Mac wandered out of the bar unscathed. Another time he was invited to a dance given by the good people of Hull on behalf of the Army, Navy and RAF. Mac mistook a Chesterfield settee for a urinal. Apparently the RAF officer sleeping on the Chesterfield took a dim view of this, which was the tinderbox for some inter-service rivalry. Again, Max sailor mates got him out of it without consequences. He also described the one time during the war he met up with his brother. Somali had put into Gibraltar and his brother Bob was part of the aircrew on HMS Eagle, which was also in port. Mac found Bob ashore, shaving by his tent. After establishing that Bob had money, they went for a spectacular run ashore, which culminated in them scaling a couple of mountainous coal storage heaps in the dockyard on a shortcut back to their ships. Their white uniforms were no longer pristine when they arrived back. His brother Bob was on the Glorious when she was sunk on the way back from Norway in June 1940 by the Neisenau and Scharnhorst. He was on deck waiting for the pilot of his swordfish when the first salvos came over. Bob went to look for the pilot, but when he came back, there was a huge hole in the flight deck where his swordfish had been. Bob was one of the 38 men out of a crew of 1,245 that survived three days in the Arctic Circle, floating on a carry raft. He emigrated to Australia in the 1950s, but always had to wear bed socks, no matter the weather, because of the nerve damage and frostbite his feet had suffered. I think Mac would have described himself as having had a good war, and he enjoyed the fact that I was very interested in his tales. He was very proud to receive a medal from the Russians in the 1990s before he died about 20 years ago. Please keep up the good work, all fascinating stuff, and it is keeping the flame of these great fellows alive. Best wishes, Guy Ferguson.
This one comes from Bram de Man. Dear Alan James, Greetings from Belgium. Your Dunkirk episodes, which I really enjoyed, and your ongoing Family Stories project prompted me to write to you. Since my country was created, as the pub landlord would say out of thin fucking air, to serve as a buffer for armed conflict, and has been repeatedly chosen as a battlefield, Belgians have many family stories from the Second World War. I would like to share my family story about Fal Gelb. In May 1940, my then 13-year-old grandmother, Irene de Man, was caught between Army Group B and the sea. Her parents had fled their home in Kamtut on the Belgian-Dutch border, with their three children, hoping to escape to England. My great-aunt Alice, who was a bit of a legend and the family historian, wrote this description of her experience as an 11-year-old on this journey. On the 10th of May, war broke out in full force. Grandfather and Aunt Jeanne came to stay with us, jar of rice pudding and all, and hastily the men dug a shelter in the vegetable patch in the garden. I believe we only spent a single night in there and it was bitterly cold. Then our parents decided that we should flee. Carrying only the most essential of luggage and in the spluttering car of the Van Stratum family, we arrived, sans grandparents or aunt, in Antwerp at the house of Uncle Pete and Aunt Steffi. Dad managed to have a car requisitioned to bring us to Japan, where we would take passage to England. From Japan, we travelled in the direction of Boulogne. Because of the sea of refugees, our progress was slow and the car frequently broke down due to overheating. After spending the night at a French farmhouse, we never got any further than Amiens, as the Germans had broken through in the south towards Dunkirk. So we turned back to Japan. There we were, stuck and encircled by the German army. A few days later we were shelled by German artillery, who were aiming for this enclave where British troops were awaiting embarkation after the Belgian capitulation. The night before the arrival of the German soldiers, the artillery barrage was especially intense, so much so that we could often hear from our basement shelter under the Lahook Bakery the sound of wounded English soldiers crying for their mothers. As the Germans marched in, everyone was standing in the streets, but no one spoke a word. An officer wanted to know in which direction to find the sea, after which he said, Balt sind wir in England. Soon we will be in England. When we were allowed to leave and return home, we ventured out to find our car and saw to our dismay that it had been completely pierced by bullets and shrapnel. The filling was sticking out of the seats, windows were shattered. But wonder of wonders, it still worked. On our way home, English casualties and equipment lay scattered everywhere. And it is there that Dad picked up the helmet that is still in our possession. Bram takes up the story once again. Our family still possesses artefacts related to this endeavour, including a requisition slip for a Dodge motor car, commandeered on the 15th of May 1940, for use by the communal administration of Antwerp. The helmet, mentioned by great-aunt Alice, is a Mark I Brody helmet produced in 1939. There are no distinguishing personal or unit markings, so it could have belonged to any one of the thousands of retreating British soldiers passing through. Or it may have belonged to one of those brave few who fought hard and desperately on the Newport Fjern Canal to protect the Allied perimeter, while Al's grandfather and his battalion were fighting equally desperate actions in the north of France. We still own a letter from the owner of the bakery, dated July the 16th, 1940, that says, Dear Madame and Sir, your letter was the first we received from all our refugees and it was doubly welcome. 
To start, I will ask you to forgive me for the long delay of my reply. The first days, we had but little courage or inclination to do much of anything. After a few days, a lot of tidying up was in order, and we were very busy for more than a month, until eventually, a few days ago, we reopened the store. There are many German soldiers scouring over all the war plunder. Every street in Japan is filled with English and French vehicles and munitions and mountains of clothes. They will be busy for months to come. And so... Life still continues, contrary to our expectations on that famous night. Thankfully, that was the first and last of its kind for us. It was a pleasant surprise to be able to have a good night's sleep on the 1st of June, though still in the cellar. How fortunate that you have found everything untarnished. So much was stolen here by soldiers, and disgracefully by the local population. My brother returned home at five o'clock on the evening of June the 1st. Our joy was indescribable. Unfortunately, our other family members have not yet returned, though we did receive word that they are safe and well in La Rochelle near Bordeaux. Many thanks for your kind invitation to Kalmthut. On the first occasion, we will take this opportunity, although we rarely travel to Antwerp. Please accept, dear madame and dear sir, the expression of our sincere feelings. Miss Therese Lehouc. Bram once again. The Lehouc Bakery was situated on the Avenue de la Mer, That puts the basement shelter, which proved a haven for my family, less than a stone's throw from Lord Gort's headquarters, which were in a seaside villa further down Avenue de la Mer. The HQ was defended by anti-aircraft guns on the seafront, which would account for some of the artillery fire heard by the family. German photographs show extensive damage to this part of La Panne, particularly the large hotels on the crossroads of the Avenue de la Mer and the Boulevard de Newport, a mere 50 metres from the bakery La Houque. But for the gracious hospitality of this kind family of bakers, my relatives might not have survived. Please keep up the good work. Bramdeman, Wustwezel, Belgium. Well, that's it for this week's Family Stories. If you'd like your family story considered for the show, please do write it up and send it to us at wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com or you can leave it for us under the Family Stories tab on our members' site. Remember, that's patreon.com slash wehaveways. Cheerio.